Thanks, Mickey, for reading God's Word for us. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And I'm just so glad that you've joined us this morning. Again, if you're a first-time guest, I just want to extend a special welcome to you. Thank you so much for, for being here. I know that the, the, the walk from the parking lot uh, to that front door, especially if this is your first time, that can be a really long walk. And thank you for, for making that and for joining us, for stepping into a new place. Uh, I know it's never an easy thing to do. So we're so glad that you're here uh, with us this morning and hope you feel very welcome here. Also, I want to uh, welcome our elementary school students who are with us this morning. Um, on fifth Sundays, we don't do elementary school programming down, uh, downstairs, and so we're, we're glad to have those students with us. Um, I want you to know that you're always welcome. Uh, we love having children in our services, but today specifically we have our elementary school students with us. And if you didn't pick up one of these uh, elementary school students, we have this available every week called the Kid Connect, um, but wanted to especially highlight that. This is a way you can kind of track along with the message. So I think there's some uh, kind of at the in the end of the aisle here in the back if you want to grab one of those if you haven't um, already and uh, do that. So um, before we begin to explore this passage of scripture that Mickey just read for us, I want to just pause and, and ask for God and to help us to understand it together as we, as we look at it. So um, let's pray together and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into this text. Uh, Father in heaven, we're uh, thankful that you um, have brought us here today. Uh, that you have given us um, some warmer weather, some sunshine. And we thank you that you bear witness to yourself in nature, in creation, but supremely you bear witness to yourself. You you reveal yourself in your word. And so now as we look at your word, I pray that you would do just that, that you would make yourself known to us um, as we look at this passage together. We pray this in the name of Jesus for his glory. Amen. Well, last Sunday evening, uh, Rachel and I uh, rented off of Amazon the uh, Disney movie Frozen, and we really enjoyed uh, watching this film. How many of the kids out here, how many of you saw Frozen? Okay, yes. Um, it's a great story, isn't it? I mean, it's a really fun movie. It's, it's the tale, if you haven't seen it, it's the tale of kind of two sisters. Um, Elsa is one of the sisters. She has these magical powers. She can make ice and snow, and, and Anna, the other sister, is just a normal Girl, And in the opening scene, Elsa and Anna are playing together, um, and, and Elsa uses her magic. They're playing and accidentally, but, but seriously injures her sister Anna. And, and from that point on, she's forbidden to use her magic, forced to kind of in fear who she is, and she's sequestered away into a life of isolation. She's plunged into a world of, of insecurity, and she's self-conscious, she's anxiety-ridden. And she kind of lives in this, this place of insecurity and isolation. And, and while the film has great storytelling and, and visual effects, really what makes it so powerful and compelling is the music. It has phenomenal music. In fact, the soundtrack uh, to Frozen is the, is the number one album on Spotify uh, right now. And, and the song Let It Go uh, won an Oscar this year. And if you've heard the song, you know it's hard to not love it, even if you, if you, if you don't want to. I found myself, I was listening to it this week, I was humming it this morning as I was getting ready uh, for church. And so I, the song is so powerful, and I want us to just take a, take a listen to part of it. So watch this clip. I wish we could keep watching. Uh, so good, so good. That, that song, it just it, it swells and it builds and it, and it captures us. And, and just to be clear, that, that song is being performed by Adina Menzel. Uh, thanks to John Travolta, we all know how to pronounce her, her name correctly. Um, but why do we love that song? What, what about the film, the story, so, so captures 
our imaginations, both the imaginations of children as well as adults, so much that it made a billion dollars and won two Oscars. I think it's because we all deal with these same basic insecurities. We want to be able to, to let go of these insecurities, to be free of them. The insecurities of what others think, of, of, of what right and wrong are, of freedom. I mean, I feel these insecurities when, when I'm proposing a new idea in a meeting as, as a verbal processor. When you're putting an idea out there, sometimes you don't know if it's going to be good until you've finished saying it. Um, and so you, you feel in those moments, you, you feel it when you're meeting new people for the first time, when you're joining a new group. Um, I feel it when I have to, to confront someone or hold someone accountable, these insecurities they well up. And maybe you feel it when, when someone asks that question, are, are you married or, or do you have kids? And, and the answer is no. And, and how do you respond? And maybe you feel it every time you walk into church. I mean, how many of you have had this, this conversation with yourself as you're walking from the parking lot to the car to, to come to church thinking, okay, now what am I going to say to people when they ask me how my week went? Small talk is so awkward. I I hate it. Oh, man. And and then, gosh, what's her name? I asked her two weeks ago. I can't ask again. I mean, we all have these conversations going through our minds when we we just walk into church. We all face these insecurities. We want to be able to just just let these things go, um, don't we? I mean, we want to just be able to to leave them behind, to be free of our insecurities, uh, of shame, of doubt, of, of other people. If only it were as easy as singing a song and sort of stomping your foot and building a castle of ice in the mountains. And I'm not discounting the film because I loved it. But it's not as easy as the song makes it sound, does it? I mean, it's just not that easy. And actually, even Disney knows that it's not easy. That's why there's another hour of the movie after that song. Because this is a struggle, it runs too deep. I mean, wh- whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're here this morning and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, or you're just here because someone brought you and, and you're just checking this out. So listen, I, I don't know what it is that you'd like to let go of, but no matter what it is that we want to let go of, the thing is, is that we can only let go of one thing if we have something better to grab onto. And we're not the first persons, the first people to deal with this. We human beings have always struggled with this kind of base-level insecurity. Even Christians 2,000 years ago were wrestling with this. Um, The ones that we've been talking about here in the book of Hebrews dealt with this. Even they had to deal with insecurity. And if you're new with us, we've been going through this book of Hebrews. It's an ancient sermon that was written down. It was originally preached to a group of Christians that were struggling to hold on to their faith, struggling to believe that Jesus really is better And this passage that was read for us this morning, it's a transitional passage in the book. So every good sermon uh, has application. If it's a good sermon, at some point the preacher is going to come and begin to explain, now this is how all this truth matters for your life. And that's exactly what the author is doing at this point. For the last five chapters, he's been unpacking all this glorious truth about who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, why he's better. And now in these verses, he's beginning to make a shift. He's turning to say, this is how it really affects your life. And and as he starts, he's showing us how the work of Jesus actually destroys our insecurities and gives us a new confidence We need something worth grabbing onto, something that can replace these insecurities. And and the author gives us three. Because Jesus, um, we have, instead of shameful guilt, we can draw near. Instead of paralyzing doubt, we can hold fast. 
And instead of lonely isolation, we can stir up, we can spur one another on. So the author begins in verse 26, or rather in verse 19, with the word therefore. And now with that word, he's looking back to all that he said in the past, and he's summarizing it really what the last five chapters down into three verses. So, so let's read those uh, again uh, together. If you have a Bible, again, verse 19, it's on page 1007 in those few Bibles. And again, if, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take that one home with you and to have in your home. Um, so verse 19, chapter 7 or chapter uh, 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So that's what he starts off. That's the summary. There's a lot there in those three verses, and it's because there's been a lot in the last five chapters that he's tried to open up. But in short, what he's saying is this. He's saying that Jesus has accomplished everything that is necessary for you to have a relationship with God. I mean, if you just want kind of a one quick way of, of summarizing those verses and really summarizing all that he's been doing in the last five chapters, what he's saying is that Jesus has accomplished everything that's necessary for you to have a relationship with God. And what's interesting is that he puts at the center of this statement the language of confidence. Did did you catch that? He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. The entrepreneur and and leadership expert Seth Godin highlights how important confidence is in, in a blog post that he put up earlier this month where he makes a distinction between systemic or, excuse me, uh, symptomatic confidence and internal confidence. Listen to what he writes. I think this is fascinating. Seth Godin, he says, it's easy to feel confident when you're on a roll, when the cards are going our way, when we're closing sales right and left. This, he says, is symptomatic confidence that's built on a recent series of successes. But he says it isn't particularly um, useful. He says effective confidence comes from within. It's not the result of external events. The confident salesperson is more likely to close more sales. The confident violinist to express more of the music. The confident leader to point us in places we want and need to go. And Seth continues, he says, you succeed because you've chosen to be confident. It's not really useful to require yourself to be successful before you're able to become confident. Now, I think that Seth's point is helpful insofar as it goes. But what Seth doesn't address is, is how do we get that internal confidence? How do we get this confidence that, that we need to have inside of us? Or where does the deep-seated insecurities that plague us come from? But this is actually where Hebrews really helps us. Because you see, you see, Christians believe that the fundamental problem with the world, the thing that's broken, the thing that shipwrecks over and over again, everything that we try to do, is the fact that people have rebelled against the God who has made them. That God, who in love and joy made people in his own image to to love and enjoy him, instead have rejected him and created this massive rupture, not only between him and them, but between themselves and the world and one another. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that these verses, in these verses, that because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, this massive rupture that's occurred can now be healed that it can be restored between me and God, between you and God, and even between one another. 
And therefore, because of what Jesus has accomplished, we can have confidence. And actually, confidence is a huge theme in the book of Hebrews. Let me just read a few verses for you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are indeed his house, if we indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and hope. This is, uh, again, 314, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then again, 416, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in a time of need. Then, then 1019, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy places. That's what we read this morning. And then again, later in, in chapter 10 here, it says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Because of what Jesus has accomplished, we have confidence and our relationship with God. And, and at this point, the author then rushes into application. He says, this is what you have in Jesus. You have confidence to go before him. And, and here, let me tell you what that means. And first, he says, instead of shameful guilt, now we can draw near. Like we said last week, we all have regrets. We all have those places in our lives where, where there's shame and there's guilt and there's confusion and hurt. But what the author is telling us is that we can let those things go and draw near with confidence because of what Jesus has done. If you look at verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, Jesus gives us a true heart, but but what does it mean to have a a true heart? What, What is the author getting at with that? Well, someone with a true heart is someone who knows God and does God's will. Someone who, who knows God and does his will. For, for example, in the Old Testament, the, the first part of the Bible, one of Israel's greatest kings, King Solomon, is speaking to the nation of Israel. And this is what he says. He says, Let your heart be wholly true to the Lord, our God. So there's that trueness of heart. And then he kind of defines what it is. Walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments. So the idea of one who's true of heart is one who knows God and who does his will. And this true heart is what we receive in the new covenant. Covenant is a way of relating to God, this new way of relating to God that Jesus has opened up, this new and living way. This is what we receive, this true heart. The author of Hebrews has been telling about this all through the middle section of the sermon. In chapter 8, he quoted from uh, Jeremiah, and then he does this again uh, in chapter 10, what we looked at last week, where he says that part of what the Messiah, this coming person who's going to rescue the nation, part of what he does is he writes his laws on the people's hearts and minds. This is what Jesus has done. We now have a true heart. This is what Jesus has given us. And our consciences have been wiped clean. Like like a long, hot shower after being covered in dirt and filth, Jesus' work on the cross cleanses us, refreshes us, restores us, renews us. And, And notice that he not only does this with our consciences, with, with our heart, with our minds, this kind of internal kind of sense of who we are. But also, did you notice in the text it says, he does this for our bodies as well. It says, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, why do I take time to, to pause and, and point out that piece? Well, because I think often Christians are seen as people who are kind of down on bodies, that, that, that we view the body as this thing that just needs to be controlled and maintained until we die and we can finally be rid of it forever. 
And this might be the view of Platonism or even some kind of strands of Buddhism or Hinduism, but it is certainly not Christianity. It is not at all what the writers of Scripture communicate. Quite the opposite, in fact. Jesus took on a human body in his birth. He died with a human body on the cross. He was raised to new life with a renewed physical body in the resurrection. And that is our great hope, that we too will one day receive a renewed physical body. God made matter, including our bodies, and he loves it. He called it very good. Is it corrupted? Is it broken? Absolutely. But it's good, and he's going to restore it. And so in light of all this, the author commands us to draw near. And and I love how Pastor John Piper put this in the selection we read, uh, actually from the Lent devotional. If if you're following along in this Lent devotional, I think this was maybe from the 26th, earlier this week, um, John Piper, uh, we included a little excerpt from a, a passage in which he writes about this drawing near. He says, this is the center of the gospel. This is what the Garden of Gethsemane and Good Friday are all about that God has done astonishing and costly things to draw us near. He sent his son to suffer and to die so that through him we might draw near. It is all so that we might draw near. It is all for our joy and for his glory. So ask yourself, have I ever really drawn near to God? Have I ever really drawn near to God? Not have I ever come to church or not when was the last time I, I read my Bible, but when was the last time I, have I ever really tried to draw near? I mean, think about all the running that we do, the hiding, all the ways that, that you and I, that we distract ourselves from relationship with God. I mean, whether it's TV in the evening or, or Facebook on our phones, all these ways that we hide and distract. Have you ever made it your goal to be near to God? Or thought about what it would look like for that to happen. Now, now if, you're, if you're not a Christian, that probably sounds impossible, right? God, if, if he even exists, feels so distant. But, but have you ever tried it? And the Bible gives us this, this wild promise that, that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. I mean, what would it look like for you to begin to draw near him? I mean, being here at church isn't a bad place to start. Maybe, maybe you know some Christians. Maybe you can join a community group to get to know some others. I, I encourage you to start reading the Bible. Uh, again, if you don't have one, pick up one of the ones that are in the pew. Start reading the Gospel of Mark. It's, it's the second one in Matthew, Mark, in the New Testament. Read the Gospel of Mark. And, and this might even sound crazier if you don't consider yourself a Christian yet, but maybe, maybe try praying. I mean, it probably feels a little weird, awkward to talk to someone that you can't see and you're not sure if he exists. But, but it can't hurt, right? Especially if no one sees you doing it. Uh, ask him to help you believe. I mean, the only thing you have to lose is your guilt and your shame. And, and if you're a Christian, it, it, it does the same things, right? It, when, once you become a Christian, these are the same ways of drawing near, of, of picking up your Bible, of praying, being in relationship with others who are following Jesus. Simply ask yourself, what would it look like for me to draw near to God? Today, tomorrow, what's one thing that I can do right now to begin to draw near to him? But, but what prevents us from drawing near to God? Well, for one, I'm not sure that we actually always believe that we've been washed clean. And the thing is, you will never draw near to God if you're trying to always impress him. 
I mean, even think about this in human relationships. If you're always trying to impress the other person, there's always a certain distance that is in that relationship, right? You can, you can never really be confident. You can never really be secure. You, you'll never go to a God that you're afraid is going to smite you. You'll never draw near to him, if, and you'll also never draw near to him if you're okay with the sin that's in your life. And we're going to talk a lot more about that next week, but, but if you're not actively fighting sin, lust, greed, gossip, selfishness, whatever it is, if you're, if you're not actively fighting those things, you're never going to try to get close to a holy God. You'll never draw near. And yet, you know, the, the best way to be forgiven, the, the best way to fight sin that lingers in our lives is to draw near to God. We are offered restoration of our purpose in the gospel. So why do we run from it? Now, in the next verse, in verse 23, the author shows us how Jesus gives us confidence in the face of another huge insecurity, namely our doubt. Um, doubt, is, doubt is a normal part of life, but, but a paralyzing doubt that, that begins to border on unbelief is what the author is addressing here. He writes, let us hold fast to our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, it's that without wavering part. That, that's the part that's difficult in this passage for me, because I'm like, well, I feel like sometimes our, maybe my hope does waver. So what is the author talking about? What does it mean to hold fast without wavering? Does it mean that we never address the doubts and questions that come into our mind about the Bible, about Jesus, about the resurrection? No, that, that's, that's not what it means. In fact, Jude chapter uh, 1 verse 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. I mean, the, the claims of Christianity are at some level are pretty unbelievable, aren't they? I mean, the core claim of Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead, that a man who was crucified on a cross rose from the dead. This is the core claim of Christianity on which everything hinges. And it's, and it's not an easy claim to accept. Because it's a one-off thing, right? Um, I heard a lecture from uh, N.T. Wright, who's a leading biblical scholar in the world this weekend. He was in town, and, and I heard him speak, and he said, I, I had someone, I was talking to a, a scholar at Oxford who talked about, you know, in, the la- in light of the last 200 years of science, I just can't believe the resurrection. And N.T. Wright came back and, and said, well, it really, it's not the last 200 years of science. It's the last, you know, however many thousand years of human history and philosophy that said dead people don't rise again. I mean, you don't have to have a degree in biology to know that dead people stay dead. And so when you come to the claim in the Bible that says Jesus rose from the dead, we're dealing with a one-off, unrepeatable historical event that's not real easy to accept at first. See, doubt stems from a difficulty in understanding. However, the wavering that the author warns about here is rooted in a desire not to believe. In an act of the will, it chooses to hope in something else rather than in Jesus. When we have doubts, we've got to press into them. If, when it, they stem from a difficulty in understanding, how can they be? Let's, let's talk about that. Let's ask questions together. And notice that the author gives us the, the reason that we can hold fast without wavering is that our hope is based on Jesus, who he describes as the one who is faithful. And, and we've used this illustration before, but, but it's, it's worth repeating that if you're falling from a cliff and you see a branch sticking out from the cliff and you reach out and grab it, it doesn't matter how much hope you have in the branch, whether your hope is really strong that it's going to hold you or it's really weak that it's going to hold you. What matters is that the branch is strong enough. It's not the strength of your hope or your faith that saves you from falling. It's all about the strength of the branch. 
right? So sometimes you may think, oh, my faith isn't that strong, or my hope is kind of weak. Well, it doesn't matter. That's not the key thing. The key thing is the object in which it's placed. And the Bible here, this text says that Jesus is faithful. He's strong. As long as you have just enough hope to, to reach out. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean that you will never have difficulty in understanding God and his ways. However, being a Christian does mean never abandoning your hope that God has revealed himself in Jesus and rescued you through his perfect life, sacrificial substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. It doesn't mean you won't ever have questions. doesn't mean you won't have things that you'll never understand. But it does mean always having a hope in the one who is faithful. Okay, so, but, but how do we hold fast? What does it look like to, to hold fast in this way? Well, first, like I said, acknowledge your doubts. Hiding from them or ignoring them, it, doesn't, it just doesn't help. It doesn't help anyone. So talk with others about them. It, it, it's okay. And I, and I hope that you feel like this is a place where you can say, I, I wrestle with this part of Scripture, or, or I don't get the resurrection. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's try to understand together. Second, doubt your doubts. And let me give you an example. When, when there's a tragedy that happens, this, this mudslide in, in Washington State or, or the loss of this Malaysia airliners, when there's a tragedy that happens like this, our doubt screams out, if God exists, how could something like this happen? And, and, and that's a reasonable doubt, something that many of us struggle with, right? How could, how could God let something like this happen? But don't forget to doubt your doubts. I mean, for me to call an event like that tragic implies that life has meaning. That, that I'm very saying that, that this shouldn't be the way it is implies that there's some standard of, of the way it should be. And, and a random existence in, in all that we're headed for, if, if that's all that we're headed for is dust that has no meaning, for us to even call something like that tragic implies that I exist for something more, which implies the existence of a God who made us for more. Now, that's not conclusive. It's not an airtight argument, of course. But sometimes we wrongly assume that our faith is unreasonable and our doubts are rock solid. But, but if you spend as much time doubting your doubts, I think you'd see that this just isn't true. So, so acknowledge your doubts. Doubt your doubts. But also refocus your doubts, too. Study the things that you struggle with. If, if you're wrestling with the, with the problem of evil, pick up a—there's you know, lots of great books out there. Tim Keller's Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Or, or if you're struggling with, with the resurrection, N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope. There's lots of great resources. Press into those doubts. Yes, there are things in the Bible that I don't understand, even as a pastor— I've spent seven plus years in academic study of this book. There's lots of things I don't understand. And there's things I, I don't particularly like. I'm sure there's things you don't like. But rather than focusing on the parts that we don't understand or that we don't like that are on the peripheral, focus on the center, the one who is faithful, the one to which every page of this book points, which is a, a man dying on a cross, God becoming flesh and taking on the sin of the world and rising from the dead. If doubt is a struggle for you, maybe, maybe there's a simple next step. Just spend some time thinking, am I more focused on my doubts than on the one who is faithful? What would it look like for you to refocus those doubts? And finally, in verses 24 and 25, the, the passage addresses one more area of insecurity that we have. 
resentments. This is probably one of the biggest. It's just other people. I mean, the question of what do other people think of me? Do they like me? Are, are they impressed by me? Um, am I thought well of, right? This is, this is why making friends, and this is why meeting new people, this is why talking to people in the lobby afterwards is so hard to do. When, when we are insecure, isolation seems like the safest place to remain. I mean, it's so much easier to, to slip out quickly after church and, and jump in the car than to risk an awkward interaction with other people who are just as insecure of you, right? I mean, this is, this is what happens. Isolation seems safer. It seems easier. But it isn't. Because isolation slowly decays us. Because we need others like fish need water, like plants need sun, like you need air to breathe. We need other people. And why is this? Why do we feel such a deep, abiding need for other people? It's because we are made in the image of a God who himself is one and three, of a God who is triune, a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, at the very core of reality, the most real thing there is, God himself is community. And when we're made in the image of a God who is himself community, if we're made in his image, we have to be in community with other people. And so here in verses 24 and 25, we see that because of the confidence we have in Jesus, instead of lonely isolation, we can actually spur one another on to love. The author writes in, in verse 24, he says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting to one another, or meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So how does Jesus get rid of our insecurities? especially these insecurities related to other people. Well, here it is. The the way that Jesus did this is that he gladly died for you. For you. He gladly died for you. And and if you are his, he calls you his brother or his sister. And we saw this earlier in the book of Hebrews. That's the kind of relationship. He says that about you. And, And you can have confidence before God because you are now a brother or a sister with the very God of the, of the universe, Jesus. This is this metaphor that captures this relationship, this intimacy. And, and so if this is who you are now as someone who's accepted Christ, that your core identity is a brother or a sister of the very God of the universe, that you've been adopted as a child, then, then who cares what other people think? The one opinion that really matters, you have absolute rock-solid confidence and security in. But it, but it goes both ways. It goes the other way, too. Because, yes, Jesus was glad to die for you, but don't forget that, that, he, that he had to die for you. That you were so broken, that your sins are so pervasive, that the only way that God could rescue you for you was to die for you. And so, in light of this, how can you possibly look down on other people, right? If this is how badly broken you are, that it took the Son of God, the God of the universe, dying on a cross to rescue you, then there's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for looking down on others. Because how could we be anything other but merciful and kind and forgiving to the people around us when we realize what it took to rescue and forgive us? So, so Jesus shatters our insecurities, but it's not merely that we can go just get along now, but we actually can spur one another on. We can stir one another up. 
that if you are a believer, that it's, it's your job to stir up, to foster, to nurture, to encourage the love and good works of the people around you. So what does this mean? What does it mean to stir one another up? How do we do this? Well, well first, we've got to be in community, right? You, you can't stir up someone that you're not with. And so continue meeting together. He says, you've got to be in a relationship. Don't neglect meeting together. And you've got to know some other Christians well enough to stir them up. It, it's not just enough to, to talk for a few minutes in the lobby over coffee. You've got to really know them. And in a church our size, that just can't happen on Sunday morning. This part. I mean, it can maybe happen a little bit. Maybe one way. Maybe I can spur you up. But to really do this, we've got to be in smaller groups of community. Whether it's a community group or, or serving on a team, there has to be smaller relationships that we're part of? Do you have people in your life that make it possible for you to obey this command? Back in January, Rachel and I joined a community group. In, in January, we kind of kif- kicked off community groups for the first time in, in a big way here at the Brookside campus. And uh, you, you may remember, we actually used this text about maybe six, eight months ago to, to talk about the importance of community groups. And, uh, you know, Rachel and I actually weren't, to be honest, totally excited about joining a group, but I figured, oh, i got to practice what I preach. I need to get in a group. I'm telling everybody else, i got to be in a group. I need to get in a group. It's like, oh, this is going to be one more thing, one more night away from home. Can I really? But I was like, Bill, in the sermon, you went through all the reasons why, even if it's one more night away, why it's still important to do. So I said, we got to get into a community group. And what we found is that while it does take commitment, it does take another night of the week, it has become one of the most life-giving places for us and something that we love. And we love the group that we're in. Um, I know Mickey mentioned that we, uh, community groups are, are open. If you're looking for a place of connection, I'd say from personal experience, it does seem like, man, it's another night away from home. The man is such a life-giving place to be. And, and second, he also tells us to brainstorm kind of about how to do this. I love this. He says, don't just, he doesn't just say to do it. He says, consider, consider how to do it well. I mean, how often do we stop and, and think and brainstorm? How can we encourage people in our lives to love and good deeds? How often do we, we, do, we do that? Saying, how can I help my family? How can I help the people in my community group? How can I help the people I know to, to, to love God more, to be more engaged? And, and I think here's a simple idea for how to do that. Just invite other people to come with you. If you're serving here with our kids, or maybe you're on the hospitality team, you coffee, or you're serving on the parking team or a welcome team, why not invite a friend and say, hey, come serve with me on this team. Hey, I, I serve down in, with the, the, the elementary school kids. It's awesome. Why don't you come serve with me? Or, or maybe you serve with one of our ministry partners around the city with the Hope Center or Mission Adelante or, or any of those why not invite a friend and say, hey, I, I'm, I'm serving down with Mission Adelante. Why don't you come with me? I'd love to just show you what we do there. Maybe it's something you'd like to get involved with. This is such a simple way because there's always needs, right? And it's more fun to do it together. So if you're involved in these areas, a simple way you can spur one another on is just invite them to come with you. Invite them to join you in what you're doing. And then lastly, he says, encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. This day that he's talking about, this, this end he's talking about, is, is Jesus' return. That there is a date set and Jesus is going to come back. This is the great promise. Jesus says, I will return. I'm coming back. And so life is hard and, and we won't be here forever. And for this ancient church, as persecution was on the rise, as, as the things were getting more difficult, the harder it gets for them, the, the more diligently we need to encourage one another. Gently, lovingly persistently. 
You see, the gospel replaces our raging insecurities with faith, hope, and love. Did you see those words kind of emerge in the text? It says, we hold fast to our hope. We draw near in faith. We spur one another on to love. Seth Godin said in that blog post that effective confidence comes from within. It's not the result of external events. And he's absolutely right. If the external events we're looking for our confidence in is our accomplishments, if you're looking to your accomplishments to give you a sense of confidence, they'll always let you down. However, the only way to have an unwavering confidence is to look outside of ourselves, outside of ourselves to the cross. You see, only in Jesus are we cleansed so that we can draw near. Only in Jesus do we find one so faithful that we can hope in without wavering. And only in Jesus do we find someone who has loved us so much that he frees us from our isolation to be able to join with others in community. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have freed us from isolation, from loneliness, that you invite us, that you call us to draw near to you, that you are so faithful, that you are so steadfast, that that we can hope in you no matter what comes our way. I pray that even now as we prepare to celebrate communion together, um, that you would be instilling in us um, this hope without wavering and the good news of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. In Jesus' name.